Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us for our last podcast before Christmas. Uh, this is episode 105. We're recording Sunday night, December 20th, 2020, at 5 p.m. Pacific time. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, as always, are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Zach, how pumped are you for those Chiefs? Oh, you know... Just, uh, you know, winners of 22 of their last 23 games and uh, maybe the greatest uh, offense of all time and the greatest quarterback of all time. Yeah, it's it's, it's good times. Good times all around. Yeah, right. I only had like 11 punts in the first half. That's all. Hey, you know, when you're playing the best team in the NFC and you still manage to uh, <laughs> make funny. them look pretty terrible, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a win. <laughs> How how are how, in what way are the Packers not the best team in the NFC? <laughs> they they pretty much dominated like eleven of their twelve wins. Um. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Take care of the Panthers and the Lions and yeah, all the all the shitty teams they play. No, I think the I think Panthers this are a... in the the <laughs> same division as the Chiefs or Saints. I don't know what. <laughs> well, I I think this was a Super Bowl preview and. Uh, I think I'm going to call this right now. When we get to the Super Bowl and when I get up there on 19, I'm bringing my, all my Johnny Cash and we're going to beat the Saints by 28 points in Super Bowl 55. I can feel it right now. I'm calling it breaking news on the podcast. That is after, what's going to happen. After you dig a double digit deficit again. Yeah. Oh, you're right. We'll go, we'll go down <laughs> like 17 nothing and then we'll win like, you know, 45 17. That's, that's how it's going to happen. That's how it's gonna happen. That's what Drew Brees can't throw a ball far farther than five yards. That's that's sad. I would love to see a Seahawks Chiefs Super Bowl. I think that would be a lot of fun. Okay, well, beat the Giants first. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, well, yeah well, well, we don't lose the Raiders. <laughs> <laughs> we usually don't either. That was just you know. I, th- I think we fell asleep that day. We played them. Ugh. <laughs> <sighs> The other game was All super right. tight. Zach, what are you drinking? I'm having everyone's holiday favorite, um, the eggnog and Kahlua. The salts. The salts family favorite. Mm-hmm. A little too much eggnog in this one, though. I think I'm going like to have to... Looks like he got a beverage there. It, it's not too far off. Isn't a white Russian like milk and Kahlua or something like that? How do you make a white Russian... I don't even know. Todd, I'm looking at you. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I've never actually made one. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's not, let's not do a mixology trivia section on this uh, <laughs> podcast. Uh, Todd, what are you drinking? Uh, I have a 1997 Columbia Crest Cabernet Sauvignon from the Columbia Valley in Patterson, Washington, which I didn't know existed. But uh, it's pretty good so far. Wow. Nice. Nice. You know, you know, the day you open a 97 Columbia, that's the big occasion. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, th- I think it's funny that Todd is the only one not drinking hard alcohol today because I, I have something different. So I've got um, a mix here where, uh, so this is, um, 
cherry bubbly water with chocolate vodka in it. So it's like chocolate covered cherries in a drink. It's actually really good. Is that really and hard so alcohol? Got... <laughs> Can we really? No, it is, and it's super that? smooth vodka too. It's it's what is it three three sixty vodka? Um, oh, so they got it's like, like seventy this, proof or something. Something like that. Yeah, it's good. And it's like a double chocolate fudge uh, flavor they have, and it's really good. The and correct response would have been I don't know seventy something. Something <laughs> that would have been the right, correct response. Yeah. Um, but I do have a beer here for when I'm done with this. So, uh, but yeah. So, cheers, cheers. Okay. Well, before we get into what we've been watching and our featured review and all that stuff, uh, the, the last couple days we've had the release of the winners from like the two biggest critics groups in the country, New York and LA. LA was today. New York, I think, was Friday. So I want to get just some quick reactions. If you haven't seen them yet, I want to. I'm gonna run by the major categories and just give me like one one impression you you have from them. So we'll start with New York. So here's New York. Um, we have for uh, for best animated Wolfwalkers, uh, best screenplay Never Rarely Sometimes Always, best director Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. Uh, best Supporting Actress, Maria Bakalova for Borat, subsequent movie film. Uh, best Supporting Actor, Chadwick Boseman, The Five Bloods. Uh, best Actress, Sidney Flanagan, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. Best Actor, Delroy Lindo, The Five Bloods. And Best Picture, First Cow. Thoughts? That's definitely a New York list. <laughs> yeah, I, I th- Never Rarely, Sometimes Always is about as New York of a movie as you get, right? Yeah, well, and Spike Lee, which I, I always said uh, Chadwick Boseman in Defy Bloods was Dark Horse and maybe the, his best chance at a nomination. But yeah. we'll see. Zach, what do you think? Oh, I'm just excited about Borat. You know what? I'm on the Borat. Tr- I'm on the Borat train just to see Todd get pissed off. Like I cannot wait until the Oscar nominations are announced and that chick gets a, a supporting actress nomination. And I, I, I'm just relishing hearing Todd's reaction to it. Oh, I don't care about her. I mean, the movie sucks, but she's she's good. Oh, that's disappointing. Okay, well, <laughs> maybe if it gets nominated for Best Picture. Oh, yeah, that all would right. be all hell will break loose. Okay, LA Film Critics now. Uh, best Animated, Wolfwalkers again. Um, best Screenplay, Promising Young Woman. Best Director, Chloe Zhao again for Nomadland. Best Supporting Actress, Yoon Yoo Jung for uh, Minari. Best Supporting Actor, Glenn Turman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which we'll be talking about here in a sec. Uh, Best Actress, Carrie Mulligan for Promising Young Woman. Best Actor, Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And Best Picture is kind of a controversial pick. Their Best Picture is Small Axe Anthology by Steve McQueen. Like, the whole thing. Well, Best Actress is wide open, I think. I think there's, like, seven that could legitimately win the thing. Yeah, I think I think Viola Davis was the runner-up behind uh, behind Carrie Mulligan. Zach, what do you think? I mean, I'm really I want I'm looking forward to watching Small Acts over this uh, break that I have coming up. Um, mm-hmm. Something that I I really feel bad that I haven't watched already, and uh, I'm I'm excited to to see it get um, recognition. But you're right, it's like sort of a categorical. I mean, how many how many like categorical like asterisks are we going to have this year? Because everything is just so messed up 
This is yeah, like this I is think, like the 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 NBA strikes shortened season like twenty years ago. You know, like do we even count this year? I think Steve McQueen got runner up for best director for Small Axe, but then I think like best score for LA went to like one of the Small Axe movies. So who knows? I think the last part of Small Axe came out today, or no, this weekend. So I think it's all out now, and I I'm gonna be doing a similar thing. I'm gonna be watching it uh, very soon too. Well, I just think it's uh, weird that, that your studio can decide whether you want to uh, participate in the Emmys or the Oscars. Like, like you actually have a choice this year because the rules are so screwed up. Yeah, that is interesting. I find it also really interesting that both of them gave Best Animated to Wolfwalkers over Soul. And Soul is the one that they're saying might, you know, be in contention for a Best Picture nomination, yet it can't even win Best Animated at the two biggest film gr- film critic groups. Well, the Critics' Choice, uh, I don't know, their animated stuff is always weird, like, that's the studio that did, like, The Secret of Kells, and those things have, like, 100% uh, approval rate on Rotten Tomatoes, but nobody really sees them. I'm sure it'll get nominated at the Oscars, but I don't think it has a chance over Pixar with the entire body voting on it. Well, it is an Apple TV Plus movie, too, so, I mean, if that it is fairly readily available for people, you know, if they actually have that streaming service. Um, so, all right. I just want to throw this out there, get, get some reactions from you guys. Uh, and, uh, we're, we're getting into award season, even though we're four months out from the Oscars, it's award season for the next third of a year, apparently. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Okay. Uh, let's get into what we've been watching. Uh, we're going to Todd first. Todd, talk about Nicolas Cage. Uh, so I chose, uh, the... 2012 Nicolas Cage movie Stolen, directed by Simon West, where Cage plays a thief named Will Montgomery who just gets out of prison uh, for eight years on a after a half like busted job or half like perceived betrayal by his crew. Uh, one of his crew members, played by Josh Lucas, and he's still salty because he thinks that um, he uh, he took the money uh, and and hid it somewhere. So he kidnaps his daughter and puts her in the trunk of his, his taxi, and he'll only release her if Cage gives up the $12 million from the job he thinks he still has. Uh, there's some really interesting actors doing good work in a really odd premise. Like, Danny Houston is playing the lead FBI agent. Uh, then you got MC Ganey, who, uh, who starts out the movie, like, singing his drunken ass off in the middle of the street at 4 a.m., which uh, sets the tone for something. Uh, definitely says to jump for something. Um, Malin Ackerman is is also the uh, the other crew member, but Josh Lucas is truly terrible in this movie. Um, Simon West is the director. He has some really good movies in the past, like Con Air. I feel like is almost like an alternate universe uh, to the to this movie. Uh, he also did this movie I really like called The Mechanic, and he did the first Tomb Raider. This movie is sort of like a hybrid of SWAT and The Italian Job. Uh, it. I, I think it's funny in, like, heist movies like this, when you're watching the heist, you you don't actually know what's going on. Like, the it's super intense because the, the characters are doing things, and these things seem to be doing something, and then the wall blows up, or and then the safe cracks open. You don't really know what's going on, but uh, but to the point that you understand, it's effective. Uh, but And there's a lot of that in this movie. You're just like, I don't know what's going on, but I like it. Um, there's a pretty uh, cool uh, Nicolas Cage car chase scene in this he's in like full action hero mode here he's like possessed he's got his ticks um and I, I miss that cage he has like too much unwarranted vanity now 
Uh, he does a lot of weird projects, but th this is, like, when he was still, like, doing, like, really cool action movies. It takes his inspiration from the Bourne movies and with, like, the cell phone usage uh, and, like, the music and the just relentless chase scenes. And it, the ending is almost like Cape Fear. I'm not sure if it, like, stole from these movies or if it's paying homage. I'm giving it two stars. Uh, it's an interesting movie, uh, uh, a cool old Cage action movie. It's number 54 uh, on the Cager uh, between Guardian Tess and Deadfall. The Cager. The Cager. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I just came up with that. <laughs> How about Caging Bull? Yeah, I thought about that too, actually. <laughs> you know we spend too much time talking when we come up with the same puns. <laughs> All right. Uh, Zach, what did you watch? Okay, so I watched the 2020 documentary Time, directed by Garrett Bradley. This is a movie that has been appearing on a lot of top ten lists, um, including uh, President Obama's um, notable film list that he came out with this week. And this is a documentary that was made, uh, that's being released by Amazon, and it tells the story of a woman named Fox Rich. And uh, in, I think, the late 90s, her and her husband, she's an African-American woman from Louisiana, and in the late 90s, um, her and her husband, they were both in their 20s, and uh, they tried to rob a bank unsuccessfully, and she was, they were both caught, she was sentenced, uh, he was sentenced to 60 years in prison, she, she was sentenced to, I think, 10, but had her sentence reduced because she took a plea bargain and her husband did not. And so the movie is chronicles the 20 years after um, their uh, trial and her attempts to uh, basically free her husband um, because a 60 year sentence for um, a bank robbery is pretty ridiculous. And the movie doesn't really address too much of the details of the bank robbery or why the sentence was so um, strong. Um, it's really more about um, Fox's attempt to, um, you know, go lawyer after lawyer, um, you know, uh, spending just countless hours and resources and money on um, trying to, to free her husband, Rob. And uh, we see her kids as they grow up. Um, she is a really accomplished uh, woman. Um, she comes from a really strong family background, and her kids are really s successful, too. I mean, uh, one of them becomes a dentist over the course of the movie. Another one um, goes to, I want to say it's Tulane University. It's a really prestigious university, um, and he's like a part of the student government there. Um, it's really, the, the documentary is mostly about how when someone is sentenced to jail, um, it's not just themselves who suffer. It's really the people in their family. It's their immediate um, circle of, of friends and family, and particularly this woman who's so devoted and uh, selfless in, in her actions. Um, the story is pretty riveting. The documentary itself, I think, suffers a little bit. Um, it's it's a it's very much on the kind of artistic experimental aspect. Um, it's intercutting old video cassette tapes with um, footage from uh, contemporary, um, the, the, the present day, I guess, um, and it's kind of an interesting backstory. Apparently, the the home movie foot what was the home movie footage wasn't supposed to be included until Fox Rich approached the director with all these tapes, and the director actually stopped the movie from being distributed to go back and re-edit it. 
Um, so stylistically, uh, I don't know, I would have preferred more of like a Steve James, more like direct cinema fly on the wall approach. But again, that's just kind of my taste. Um, I do feel like though visually it's a beautiful movie, very sumptuous and, and interesting to kind of watch the intercutting that takes place. Um, it's a solid documentary that's probably a more powerful story than it is an actual piece of filmmaking. I want to know more about the, the, the story and I, I, I want to maybe have a more journalistic sort of um, aspect to it. But again, that's, that's me as a viewer. I can see why a lot of people love this movie and why it's appearing on a lot of top 10 lists. I give it uh, a solid three stars. All right. Worth checking out right, for sure. Good. Very much worth worth your time. And yeah, you said it's on that's my on list. Amazon I, Prime, right? I was, uh, I've been looking forward to watching that. Yeah. Sorry, on what am, did you say, on Amazon, on Amazon Prime, right? Correct, yeah. Okay, so easy to find, too. Very, Cool, yeah. awesome. Good, uh, good documentary for us to check out. All right. Now my turn. Uh, my anniversary watch takes us back to 1990. And here's your, uh, here's your quiz, guys. All right. This movie was nominated for four Oscars, all of them above the line, but none of them Best Picture. The Hunt for October? Nope. Uh, the Grifters? The Grifters. Ah. Yes. Best Actress, Angelica Houston. Best Supporting Actress, Annette Bening. Best Director, Stephen Frears. And Best Adapted Screenplay. Oh, that's what you meant by for, Above the Line. I messed uh, up yeah. your, that question. Okay. Above the, yeah. Yeah, the major categories. Yes. You, sorry, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Terry, you were using an industry term that us lay people don't understand. <laughs> sorry. That he's used the last three podcasts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, anyway, so The Grifters, yeah, The Grifters stars... Um, Angelica Houston, John Cusack, and Annette Bening, they are three con men. Uh, Angelica Houston is uh, John Cusack's mother, and Annette Bening is his girlfriend. And uh, he kind of gets into this uh, kind of triangle with them, and his, his interactions make it so that um, it... it you're kind of seeing who's trying to figure out who's playing who and um, and who's trying to pull a con off on on which one. And uh, and John Cusack's kind of caught in the middle of not really wanting to pull anything off on any of them. Uh, but he's got to kind of pick a side in what's going on. Um, I feel like it I feel like matchstick men kind of pulled a lot from this. I, um, just in that idea of con men and where where do one's loyalties lie and did, do you pick the right side? Um, and uh and it was it was really it was really a cool story. Um, I will say, uh, Angelica Houston and Annette Bening are both awesome in this, and they both deserve the recognition that they got. Um, what, um, as I, I was starting to watch, I'm like, okay, you've got obviously three mains here. How does John Cusack get ignored? Um, and he has a really strong start to this movie. And the first, the, like the first half hour, you're like, okay, it's obvious why John Cusack got this role because he's this slick talking kid. I can pull this stuff off. But as the movie progresses and as Angelica Houston and Annette Bening start to shine, um, John Cusack, I feel like kind of gets left behind and is definitely seen as the inferior actor of the three. Um, and, uh, and really kind of has some clunker scenes where, where he's just not his, his performance just is not working. Um, however, Despite that, the story's cool enough. The ending is unpredictable enough that um, I'm giving it three and a half stars. It's a lot of fun, and it's uh, it's definitely worth a watch if you haven't seen it. If especially if you like kind of these like 
crime thrillers, not quite sure where things are going and not quite sure what's going on until it until it all comes crashing down, uh, then you'll really like uh, then you really like the Grifters. Todd, I know you're a fan of this one, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a really cool, slick movie. I, I think it's one of Annette Bening's best performances, and I, I think she was basically lead too. I, I would have put her in the lead category, and she's my winner that year as well. I I I've liked the movie a lot. It's in my top ten of 1990. Do, do you agree with me about John Cusack's performance? Though I I feel like it it starts off strong, but as it goes along, I'm like okay, yeah, there's a reason you did not get any recognition for this movie. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that's been a lot of his career. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Zach, have you seen The Grifters? I have not. It's been on my list okay. for a while. All right, well... Didn't we Scorsese produce left. it? Or am I off He produced that? it. He also uh, he also gives the uh, opening uh, opening narration to the first scene, too. Mm. So, uh, it, which is... It's one of those you're hearing, like, wait a second. I know that voice. <laughs> the opening line isn't as far back as I can remember. I always wanted to be a, bit, a gangster, is it? No. Okay. No. That would be plagiarism from another 1990 <laughs> movie. I was going to say, considering that movie came out the same year. Actually, um, maybe if it came out after, maybe Goodfellas would have been plagiarizing it. Oh. oh. Conspiracy theory. Yeah. Um, oh, a couple, a couple shout-outs. There's some really interesting um, small roles in there. Uh, it was really cool to see. Uh, oh, where are their names? It was really cool to see Pat Hingle in something where he's not playing Commissioner Gordon like he did in the four Burton Schumacher Batman movies. Um, and he actually plays a fairly sinister guy in this. And then you also have uh, J.T. Walsh, um, Lieutenant Colonel Markinson, in this in a really small role. And uh, some really funny turns by uh, Paul a uh, Adelstein and Jeremy Piven as just some sailors that are randomly on a train with them. Um, that, that pop up for like 30 seconds and then they're gone. Um, so yeah, so we, we've got two weeks left in 2020. I've got three movies left on my list, so I'll be doubling up one of these weeks to, uh, to be caught up and, uh, and then done, done with my list. I'll, uh, it, it's exciting. Okay. Don't we technically Let's... only have one more episode? Technically one more episode. Yeah. Because I think, I think New Year's day is on a Friday. So I'm calling it two, still two weeks, but we only have one more 2020 episode. All right, let's get into our featured review. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zach movie ever made. You got to see it. Movie reviews. And for our featured review, we are looking at a movie that's already been mentioned a couple times as we were talking about the Critics Awards. It is definitely a heavy player coming into the Oscar season. It was just released on Netflix this last Friday. It is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, uh, starring Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman, the latest August Wilson adaptation that uh, producer Denzel Washington is bringing to the screen. A one, a two, a you know what to do. This would be an empty world without the blues. I try to take that emptiness and fill it up with something. But they want to call me Mother Blues. That's all right with me. It don't hurt none. 
Where's the, uh, the horn player? I got a friend. Come on, Levy. You rehearse like everybody else. I'm going to get me a band and make me some records. I know how to play real music, not this jug band shit. You call that playing music? I know what I'm doing. Go on and fire me. I don't care. When I got there, they began to say. That's to get the people's attention. That's when you and Slow Drag come in with the rhythm part. Me and Cutler play on the break. The sooner you understand it, and what you say is what my say to count. <laughs> we'll be ready to go in 15 minutes. We'll be ready to go when Madam says we're ready to go, and that's the way it go around here. These records are gonna be hits. Please come home to me. Every colored man in the world got to do his part. I'm gonna tell the white man just what he can do. They don't care nothing about me. All they want is my voice. About them songs I give you. They're not the right songs. I don't take them off your hands for you. I got my time coming to me. Hey! You don't know nothing about what kind of blood I got, what kind of heart I got beat here. Zach, tell us all about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and what you thought. Uh, geez, Terry, that's such an inappropriate question. Oh, you mean, oh, the movie. Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, yes, the movie is, uh, as Terry said, um, Chadwick Boseman's final film. He seems like a strong contender for best actor. A lot of folks thought Viola Davis was a shoo-in for best actress, but as we all know by now, even though she's the titular role, she is more of a supporting actress in this movie. Um, it tells the story of a recording session in Chicago in 1927. I don't know. It was this. I'm guessing this was not a real recording session. Do either of you know that? I think it. Would, I don't know. I think it's a highly fictionalized account of a real life person, Ma Rainey, who was a legendary African American jazz singer from Georgia in the 20s. Um, and uh, so the 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 movie is set um, in this recording studio where her backup musicians, who are played by Chadwick Boseman, Coleman uh, Domingo, Glenn uh, Turman, and uh, Michael Potts are waiting for her and um you know long stretches of the movie are kind of their dialogue as they kind of riff on each other they all kind of come from different backgrounds the chadwick boseman character whose name is levy is a really ambitious young trumpeter who is cocky and arrogant as the movie starts um he's rewritten the opening session section of the song um i believe it it is the song ma rennie's black bottom that he, he rewrote um, and over the course of the movie, he kind of gets put in his place, not just by the, the fellow, um, uh, band members, but also by Ma Rainey herself and the white studio, um, owners. Um, so really the movie is more about the Levy character than it is about Ma Rainey. Uh, when Ma Rainey is on screen though, she is larger than life and she's in the, you know, the first five minutes of this movie, you're kind of th thinking, um, oh, this is going to be, you know, an amazing performance by Viola Davis who, you know, clearly gained a lot of weight for this movie, uh, did, did a lot with her makeup and appearance and, um, I think is riveting. I, I don't know if she will win Best Supporting Actress, but I think she absolutely deserves a nomination. Um, she lights up the screen and is, I mean, kind of unrecognizable in this role. Um, and it just proves that she is probably, 
I mean, I dare say the most versatile working actor, actress in Hollywood today, certainly one of the most. And she's also, you know, um, one of the few triple crown threats, Tony Award winner, Emmy winner and Academy Award win uh, winner. This will certainly go on her resume as one of her great performances. I, unfortunately, I don't think the rest of the movie quite uh, works um, when she, she's in it. It sparkles. The rest of the movie, though, kind of feels um, it feels very stage bound for one thing. And Fences felt stage bound, too. But I think with Fences, because Denzel Washington and Viola Davis were so compelling as characters and because you understood them, um, the, the movie kind of worked, even though it did, it was kind of limited in terms of its visuals. This movie feels even more kind of stilted. It feels really like, uh, you know, set in these kind of back corridors of the studio session. Um, the movie tries to intercut footage of Ma arriving in her car for some sort of visual contrast, but it doesn't really work. What should be really compelling and interesting dialogue that I bet worked very well on stage in this movie just kind of comes across as flat because, at least for me, I just kept waiting for Ma Rainey to show up. I was expecting this to be a movie about Ma Rainey, and it really isn't. And so, again, I'm kind of I'm kind of torn a little bit because I, I respect the ambition of August Wilson to make a movie that is much more just about this iconoclastic major figure and really kind of delve into more of the uh, nuances about being a black musician in the 1920s and just, you know, uh, some uh, a uh, rising African-American um, creative in the 1920s. I think that that's that's compelling. But in this movie, it gets overshadowed by a historical figure who merits much more story than what this has to offer. Um, and I did feel as though the climax was not particularly surprising. I, I think you could kind of see the direction in which it was going. And I think a moment that should be shocking in this movie was kind of uh, scripted. And I feel like this movie tackles a lot of issues, a lot of pertinent issues about ownership, um, copyright, um, creativity, and particularly um, the, uh, the oppression of African-American artists in the 1920s. But this just isn't really the story that um, I think uh, the, you know, these significant figures deserve. So I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think I have to go two and a half stars for this movie if I'm being t totally honest. Uh, like, it's, it's, I guess, out of two and a half stars out of respect, I'm not African-American. I'm not a scholar of African-American musicians in the 20s. I think I should rewatch this movie um, maybe with different a different set of expectations. But I have to say, I wanted to see more of Ma Rainey in this story. And Viola Davis is fantastic. I wish they could have just maybe simplified it and went more for a straightforward biopic. But that's not what August Wilson wanted to do and he was a genius. So I tip my hat to him and I'm probably wrong in my review. All right, Todd, you're next. How about you? What did you well, think? August Wilson didn't have anything to do with this movie. He hadn't wrote the play, but uh, I don't know. That's kind of weird. But uh, I agree with on basically everything that you said, Zach. Uh, I think the movie, uh, in trying to be a movie, doesn't really work. Immediately, it's corny. Like, the, the score is hokey and horrible and lame. I, I, thought, I was thinking it was like Mr. Saturday Night or something. Which begs the question why David Paymer was not one of like the executives or something. This is totally the kind of movie that he would be in. Uh, I, I also was thinking of like me and Orson Welles, which is another like historical figure movie that that is a largely fictionalized account. Those are better uh, examples of this. Chadwick Boseman in his role is pretty electric. He's doing like a Will Smith channeling sort of thing. He's fun to watch, and he's like showing off his like contagious energy that he has but like you said viola davis dominates the movie every moment she's not on screen the movie shrinks and it just seems like a dressed up play and normally for me that's not really a problem like like you were saying fences uh 
is a is a good example uh, of a good movie like that. Uh, but this movie goes nowhere, like literally and figuratively. Like the whole thing takes place in like two rooms, and uh, every actor is acting like it's a play too. Like they'll say a line and then they'll like walk away, uh, like like tiptoeing away, like waiting for the audience reaction, and then they'll turn around, they'll start talking again. It's like it's like I don't I don't know what they were trying to go for other than like a film version of a play. I mean, it just looked like I was watching a play. And the movie is just a collection of scenes. It's not really a movie. It just gives it a really low ceiling, and uh, it's a lack of imagination, which it, it could have expanded into something and put Viola Davis on screen more, because she's really awesome and really compelling to watch. And and the movie does not seem like a play just when she's like on the screen. She doesn't even have to be speaking. And how many times do you have to hear the damn title of the movie? It was, like, super annoying. Like, I mean, I think, I think it might set the record for most times in one scene saying uh, saying the title of the movie. And I think the movie sort of reinforces stereotypes, as I know it wasn't really going for. I'm giving it two and a half stars as well for other performances, and that's really it. Alright, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you guys. I'm gonna go three out of respect for the performances. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as you guys, uh, Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman, like you guys said, I think both of them are outstanding. Um, I think this might've been Chadwick Boseman's best performance that he gave, which is incredible considering it's his last performance. Um, I think, uh, there are certain parts of his performance that ring even truer, um, knowing the pain he was going through and knowing that, um, now we're watching this after he's gone, um, and I, I, I think that that adds some some gravity to some of the some of the lines he has. Um, and like you said, Viola Davis, uh, she can do no wrong in this movie. She is she's electric. She's demanding. Um, she's frustrating at times to watch. And yet you can't take your eyes off of her. Um, I wanted to see more interaction between Levy and Ma Rainey because you have these two dynamic electric uh, characters fronting this movie and they they spend literally like maybe five minutes actually on screen together and that's it um and, and you don't see like them actually like like levy is is very restrained whenever he's around her because he's he's playing the backup like he's supposed to be instead of I and mean, you needed that showdown between the two of them and it didn't have it um however i will say i'll, I'll like a lot of what you guys were saying um, the script, it felt so contrived and it, it felt like some of these scenes were very much, um, all right, let, let's, let's set up so that this character can have their monologue. All right. Now we're going to set up so this character can have their monologue. All right. Now, and it's like, how did we even get to talking about that? Why, why are we just have a five minute monologue about this? There was no, like, like fences felt very lived in and it had that, it had that, stage feel but it felt very natural at the same time this doesn't doesn't necessarily feel that way and maybe it's because what denzel washington did with fences it was a straight adaptation of august wilson's uh uh script not uh, script for the play where this was adapted to make it more theatrical but uh i don't know i don't know if it needed it um, I felt like this movie was, uh, was over edited and it was like distractingly edited. I don't know if I've ever seen more edits or more cuts mid word to a different camera angle of the same character. Like ever. It was like 
trying to edit in a way to show you, hey, wait, no, this is a movie. This isn't a, this isn't a stage play. This is a movie, and we're going to show by cutting to these other cameras in the same room. And it, it I, the editing was distracting. And that's something I no, normally don't notice, but in this movie, I definitely noticed it. Um, so yeah, like I said, it was very, very contrived, very frustrating in that it wasn't what I wanted it to be. However, those two performances are undeniable. I think it's really interesting that we just talked about Glenn Turman won a Best Supporting Actor today from the LA Film Critics. He's pretty good in it as well. I really liked Coleman Domingo as Cutler, who was kind of the one that was taking everything in. Like He was like the passive observer of both Levy and Ma Rainey in everything that was going on. And I thought his character was very compelling as well. Um, so all the performances in it are great. But the movie just kind of falls flat. So I'm right there with you guys. You're giving it two and a half. I'm giving it three. Uh, for I, I, I feel like a th it needs to be three stars if it gives two of the best performances of the year. So that's where I'm at. Yeah, it seems like a pretty clear SAG ensemble winner. But to single out one of the supporting performances is just weird. Like, I, I mean, Glenn Turman's fine. Uh, Coleman Domingo is fine. I, all I could think of when I was looking at him is that he looked like an old Patrick Ewing or something. I mean, I don't think any of those guys are anything more than anonymous supporting guys to the two leads. But I, I, I don't know. To single one of them out is just strange to me. Now, Zach, uh, correcting something you mentioned before, Viola Davis is campaigning as lead actress in this. Oh, okay. So she's going for a lead actor or lead actress. So. Well, and yeah, I mean, I, I would also go, I echo what you said, Terry, that the final confrontation in this movie, which is the way that August Wilson wrote it, is not between Ma Rainey and Levy, but between Levy and, uh, I believe, the character of Cutler, right? And um, I, that's like, just, it's not, it's, it's not satisfying in the way that the scenes with Ma Rainey were more satisfying, particularly her encounters with the white studio ownership. Um, I was going to say, you know, this is a topic that I think is really fertile for uh, filmmakers to explore. Um, again, black musicianship being hijacked by white producers and studio heads um, in the 20th century. It's a really good documentary that I would recommend called Remaster the Lion Share, which is all about the song In the Jungle, The, the Lion Sleeps Tonight, which was written by um, an African-American um, man and basically just, you know, never got any kind of royalties for it. Um, I, that to me is, I think what the movie, that was certainly a large part of what this movie was trying to be about, but it's so obfuscated by the other uh, characters and the dialogue that um, it doesn't get its fair, its fair treatment. Um, I would also just have to say that I, I thought it just, it doesn't work. Um, if you just film it in, in one place. I mean, I know we've already said that before, but, you know, there are other examples that work, but I feel like this filmmaker, if they really wanted to adapt it to the screen, needed to make it a lot more dynamic and fluid instead of this one day, one scene sort of premise, because that's not what, what, that's not what cinema is. And it's particularly hard in the COVID era when you're watching this at home. I wonder if watching this on the big screen would have been a different experience. Mm. That's a good point, too. All right. Well, yeah, so overall, fairly disappointing uh, with the movie. But uh, again, like we said, the performances are pretty undeniable. And we'll be hearing about those all the way up to Oscar night. Um, and uh, I, I think at this point, I think it, I think Chadwick Boseman has a better shot at winning than, uh, than Viola Davis. What do you guys think? 
I don't. I don't know. <laughs> like I said, I think I think Best Actress is wide open. I Bozeman is one of the like three favorites. So I, I, it's a yeah. toss-up. You know, when I was watching this movie, I felt like they rewrote it to make uh, Bozeman's part a larger part. But when you look at the actual they history, did. I think they did. Well, yeah, but okay. So I haven't seen. I thought the play, that but... too. I, yeah, I thought. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It, that actually it, happened. <laughs> It does seem like the Levy character was a more considerable character than Ma Rainey, even in the original stage version. And it was originally played by Charles S. Dutton, interestingly enough. So I don't know if that's totally the case, but I'd, I'd be interested in knowing that. I think I heard that they they expanded it a little bit, but it was it definitely felt kind of like co-leads originally, too. All right. So, two and a half, two and a half, and three stars on that one. It's on Netflix, and like I said, we're going to be talking about it for a while. If you want to see Chadwick Boseman's last performance, uh, make sure you check that one out. Okay, moving on. So, uh, our we've got uh, Mount Rushmore we're going to be looking at. We've got our power rankings we're going to be looking at. And for both of these, we're looking at this. We've got a deep dive that we'll be doing next week, but this is our last opportunity in 2020 to look back at the 2010s as we've been doing all year, and do some some looks at the decade that was in film. And so we're given a couple last parting shots to that in uh, with our with our Mount Rushmore and our power rankings. So starting with our Mount Rushmore, uh, this is a category Todd came up with, and I'm I'm really fascinated by it. And it was really really cool to start to look through this. So our Mount Rushmore is the lowest war performances that were nominated for an oscar in the 2010s did i get that right todd yeah yeah so the most replaceable performances that were honored with an academy award nomination uh from the last decade we're gonna build our mount rushmore here obviously there's no consensus to start with so we're gonna each give our submission and then argue over who should be the last one so, uh, Todd, this was your category. You're going first. Uh, who is your submission for this? So when I was looking through it, uh, it, it ended up being a lot of like movies that were beloved by the Academy that they added on another nomination to it. Uh, and the one that I think is a, a clear example of that is Octavia Spencer in The Shape of Water. I, I feel like that performance could be played by absolutely any actor or actress in Hollywood. And, I mean, Octavia Spencer is always great. She she always uh, steals scenes, and she does in that movie as well. But I don't think that it's anything about her that makes that character interesting. And I, I think it could be replaced by uh, basically anybody. I, I actually had that on my list, too. And and I agree that I as I was going through it, that was what I saw a lot of, too, is the... The movies that they love that they added an extra nominee on to. Um, I'll go next. And the one I'm going to go with is actually one that isn't that. Um, I, I've got a list here of like seven different ones that I just quick wrote down. Um, and this is one of the few that I wrote down that is a lead performance. It's a movie I love. And it's a performance I actually really love. But I don't think it is that, oh, that necessary mine. that that this person played it. Am I Don't stealing yours? I think I, I think you are, but go for it. I'm going with Matt Damon in The Martian. Yeah, you stole mine. Damn it, Terry. I stole yours. <laughs> I think that's a terrible pick. I, I think it's Matt Damon that makes that makes that movie work. 
Oh, but I could see I could see several other people playing that part. It, it I feel it's a fairly replaceable role, even though I love his I love him in it. I love the movie. I love the part, but I really don't think Matt Damon is that necessary to the part. So, uh, so I'm going Matt Damon in The Martian. Or do or do you want to go with it, Zach? And no, talk no, no, a little no, no, no. Because okay. I had two. And I okay. can decide between these two. So you made the decision for me, Terry. Thank you. But Matt yeah. Damon da- Matt Damon is an awesome pick. Octavia Spencer, that's that's her role. That's who she plays in every movie. So I feel like she kind of owns that role. So therefore, I don't necessarily think it's a low war performance. She owns that. So I don't I don't know if I see it that way. But I do understand that maybe it's derivative. Um, okay. But I will say I will say yeah. though, like her her nomination in like the help is much more justified and she won for that. Her nomination for hidden figures even is much more justified because she does something with that. That is, that's impressive. The shape of water. Like I, I, she's, she's fine in it. She's, but she's just kind of there. There's nothing really special about the part. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so I, it's probably, it's it's the weakest of her nominated performances. That's, that's very, absolutely. Okay. So thank you, Terry, for making my decision easier. Uh, I went, so it came down to Matt Damon, and then the other one I had was, um, okay, there is one performance that got nominated this decade that actually was a replacement performance, so shouldn't that, in theory, be the number one, and that is Christopher Plummer and All the Money in the World? I mean, his role was replaced, so therefore, he meets all the criteria. Besides that, it is an easily replaceable role, if you watch the movie, and uh, there's nothing exceptional about it. And um, no one remembers the performance. They just remember that he replaced another actor who we shall not mention, who did some very, very bad things um, and shouldn't have been in the movie. But yay, Christopher Plummer. Well, and my favorite part of that story is nobody wanted Kevin Spacey in that role to begin with. But the studio's like, no, 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 you need the star. And if you look back at the trailer of Kevin Spacey in that role, it's like... And then you see what Christopher Plummer did with it. It's like, oh yeah, Christopher Plummer is going to own that role so much better than than what was originally intended. Well, in it's that. like some, some absurdly heavy makeup and stuff that was that they put on Spacey. So yeah, yeah, it was kind of comical, I, and the movie was bad anyway. But uh, yeah, that's a good pick. Yeah, I had I had him written down too, simply for exactly what you said. It was I haven't even seen the movie, but I'm like. It, it literally was replaced, so you have to you have to consider it. Okay, well, I wrote, so I wrote got... down two for each category, and neither of the ones you guys mentioned were ones I wrote down. Ooh, okay. So so far we've got Octavia Spencer, Shape of Water, Matt Damon, The Martian, and Christopher Plummer, All the Money in the World. Now we got to find a fourth one that we're going to agree on. So Todd, give some of the give some of the ones you've got, and we'll see if it matches any of the ones I still have. Uh, for best actor, I wrote down. Uh... Viggo Mortensen in Captain Fantastic, and Good she would tell us she had four for Twelve Years a Slave. Uh, yeah, those are just performances that that are not that uh, stand out in the in the grand scheme of things. Uh, for Best Actress, I wrote down Naomi Watts in The Impossible and Glenn Close in The Wife. For Supporting Actor, I wrote down Jeff Bridges in Hell or High Water and Sam Rockwell in Vice. And for Supporting Actress, I had, in addition to Octavia Spencer, Sally Field in Lincoln. Those are all just performances that are just, they, they're just add-ons. Yeah, the, the Sally Field one's not bad. Jeff Bridges in Hel- for Hell or High Water, oh, he's good I, in that. I would, 
I would argue, yeah, I mean, that's it's, that's it's a not a matter Jeff of Bridges good or not. performance. But who else I mean, play it? I, Tommy Lee Jones, yeah. he did for No Country for <laughs> Men. The exact same performance. Like, it's not hard to recast that role. <laughs> Kevin Costner would have been the that exact feels same. Such a, that feels like such a Jeff Bridges performance, though, and such a Jeff Bridges role. Um, I've got actually none of the ones I have written down. Did you mention? So, um, I've got, um, I've got two supporting actors and two supporting actresses. My supporting actors that I have written down are Tom Hardy for the Revenant and, uh, Christian Bale for the big short. What? Tom Hardy. Um, Tom Hardy was amazing in that movie. That's a, that's a high war performance. But I don't necessarily think that it needed to be Tom Hardy to be a great performance. Um, and the, the two supporting actresses are uh, Jackie Weaver in Silver Linings Playbook and Amy Adams for Vice. I think we could just say, like, the fourth wow. submission is Vice outside of Christian Bale, but um, maybe even with Christian Bale. But that I felt that was pretty, that was a pretty replaceable performance. It, very similar to, like, Octavia Spencer <clears throat> in that she didn't really do anything to earn the nomination. All right, well, in the words of Murray in Clueless, are you bitches blind or something? Are you forgetting about the most forgettable performance maybe to ever be nominated for an Oscar? One that's so forgettable that it actually is now remembered? And that is, it, it begins and ends with Robert Duvall and The Judge. I mean, come on. It that's doesn't not, get any lower than that. That's not that low of a war, though. Like, that, I don't know, an 85-year-old actor doing, like, it's a good performance. And I, I don't know, I, I, would, I never considered that. I haven't seen The Judge, so I, I yeah, couldn't technically comment I haven't on seen it. it either. I also went with Kira Knightley in The Imitation Game, but I, th- I think you, yeah. I think for the most part, you bring up you. These are all pretty good, pretty good choice. I, I, I wouldn't. I think Shoot El Edgy Ford does not belong on the on the list, but pretty much everyone else you said. What, why not? Like, wh- can't you well, see to carry like the almost... movie? I mean, it's it's a challenging role that he has to carry. And, and... and is he is he that much the standout? I think he's like the third or fourth most no, memorable character, not, and he's the main character. His character isn't as flashy as other characters in it, but I think it's a really challenging role. Well, and the, it the interesting thing, though, well, and and that's that's the thing, though, is I I think it's an incredible performance, but I kind of agree with Todd in that I think no matter who you cast in casted in that role, he was going to be nominated for for best actor. Um, and the move and. and and if you change out that 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 actor for somebody else, I think that that movie is still just as impactful and just as powerful. I don't think the I fact mean, that it's Chiwetel makes it that that um, is that important in, to that role. I mean, the, the 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 underlying topic that we're talking about really is what war means, and war means different things to to, to each of us. And I don't know. I'd rather pick on the performances that. I think we're just less appealing. I think Chudel Ejiofor Ch- 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 is amazing in that movie. And yeah, maybe it's not the highest war, but I'd rather pick on like, yeah, Sally Field or Robert Duvall, like people who, you know, have been around forever and doing work that they're kind of like doing in their sleep. Yeah, I mean, we, we always talk highest war is like most irreplaceable. And and that's kind of what, what we're looking at here. Okay, um... I'm I'm still I I still like Amy Adams for Vice the best of all the ones that have been mentioned. Yeah, I, I wouldn't argue with that. Yep, I agreed. Thrice approved. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and which is sad. I, don't because, even I mean, Amy her Adams her. is great. I mean, she plays the wife. And, yeah, and just uh, has no Lynn business Chaney. being being nominated. I mean, it, it was it's kind that of was similar. Her sixth nomination. <laughs> I, I almost put down her for American Hustle too because she had no business being nominated there, and uh, but I think 
she at least was doing something interesting there. Where here it was just, she showed up and it was a movie that they wanted to love on, so she got the nomination. So, okay, so we'll go with that. So we got Octavia Spencer, The Shape of Water, Matt Damon for The Martian, Christopher Plummer for All the Money in the World, and Amy Adams for Vice as the lowest war Oscar-dominated performances of the 2010s. Okay. A crowning achievement in those actors' careers. Yeah. Beautiful. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into let's get into power rankings now. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm gonna pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. So Zach won last time, and so Zach got to pick what we were doing. And uh, and he decided to uh, send out 2020 with a bang for our uh, for our power rankings here. This was the hardest one to come up with because how we the hell are we gonna do so this? much stuff? <laughs> I I don't I don't gonna, know. Are these ranked? No, no, <laughs> no ranking. <laughs> All right, so, we'll just, so it's just Zach, power. Tell no us, power. No ranking. Just power. Tell us what we're doing here. Tell us what we're doing. Uh, okay, how should I describe this? Um, okay, so this was very stream of conscious, but you know, I, on our podcast, we we do a lot of categories, but I think the five main ones we always do are highest war performance, worst performance, biggest stick man, biggest douchebag, and uh, uh, what's the other one? Uh, favorite minor character. And so I thought, why not just apply that to the 2010s as a decade and choose from any movie that you want? Except hopefully not Uncut Gems, because you could choose all of them from Uncut Gems. But And I tried to stay away from except that. Except Worst but, Performance. Uh, except Worst Performance, that's that's true. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, I, 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 let's let's fire away. <laughs> it'll, be, uh, I'm, I'm, it'll be hilariously impossible to predict Adam's list, but those are always the most fun. Oh ones. yeah, oh yeah. And, and so the, the crazy thing is that we had to cut, these are basically five categories, but we're only revealing our number one. From every single one of them. So I'm yeah, for each of the these, old... I, I picked a, an actor, an actress, one that would be obvious for me, and a Nicolas Cage pick. <laughs> so someone had extra time. I no, I, like I really top... didn't. It just became obvious for the Nicolas Cage. I've got part. like a top three to five for every category. Wow. Um, with with some well, because I just had to come up with possibilities, and then and then I had to pick one of them to be the one. You you put Anyways, in a lot I'm... more work than I did. Both of you. <laughs> I'm uh I'm 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 titling this the all decade superlatives. That's that's what we have here. That's it's, it's like our five superlatives we do for every deep dive. So now we're applying it to the decade. Okay. So uh I'll, we'll just we'll just go through. So whenever we do this in the deep dive, we always go um war, worst performance, minor character, stickman, douchebag, and so we're just going to go in reverse order and and kind of build it up, not ranking them or anything. So we're going to start with the biggest douchebag. Um the biggest douchebag character of the 2010s. Uh, I'm going to go first. Uh, so my biggest douchebag of the 2010s, um, I am going with Hans from Frozen. Um, he is about as uh, as big of a douchebag as uh, Disney has ever come up with. Um, and uh, he he's this guy who can't become a king in his homeland, so he tries to seduce Anna to to be that and that like that moment where it's like oh true love's first kiss too bad nobody loves you like that moment right there i remember watching this in theater and be like oh no no oh that was a dick move and then you and yeah he is the biggest douchebag like ever in terms of disney and so he's my he's my biggest douchebag of the decade 
I don't really remember much about that movie. Yeah, so. I thought Hans was a good person. Or was that the snowman? No. That's a... No, the, the good one is Kristoff. Oh, that's right. Okay. And Olaf is the snowman. You obviously don't have kids. <laughs> we watch this movie about three times a week right now. <laughs> and if it's not this one, it's the, it's Frozen 2. So do you have the all-frozen yeah. list for these five categories? No, no. Okay. That's, that's the only animated to, to show up. It's just, as I was going through, I'm like, oh yeah, no, that that's good. And nothing's going to beat that. So, okay. Uh, Todd, you're next. Biggest right, douchebag. Yeah, my Billy Bats, uh, well, the obvious one for me would have been Michael Sarah and This Is The End, because that's the only one that was on my biggest douchebags of all time list that we did. Uh, but I chose Brian Saka in The Wolf of Wall Street, uh, because uh, almost basically anybody uh, in the Stratton Oakmont could be the biggest douchebag, so I just chose the one that I think is the biggest douchebag, and he plays Pinhead. And that character is probably the most unlikable character in the entire movie. And I, I don't know, like, Rhonda! Has anybody f***ing seen Rhonda? Like, and the look on his face, like, that, that, every time it just begs for punches. I, I, like, you cannot stand that character. Like, you watch him and you just hate yourself for loving watching him. Uh, yeah. Brian Saka as Pinhead in The Wolf of Wall Street is my biggest douchebag. Nice, nice. I mean, yeah, you you did go to the movie that's just chock full of douchebags. So could have had the top like five <laughs> douchebags of the decade. All are just employees of Stratton Oakmont. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, Zach, who's your biggest douchebag of the decade? All right, well, I wanted to go with Marco uh, Perella from Boyhood, but I feel like I've mentioned him before on the podcast, so I'm going to mention someone else who uh, I've mentioned even more, um, which is Shirley MacLaine and Bernie. We don't often get the female douchebag, but she is the very definition of a female douchiness. And she is this old lady. Um, she hasn't even done anything in her life. She's just the widow of a rich guy who ran a bank. And she's like very similar to Mr. Potter in some ways. She turns people's loans down, probably runs the uh, the draft board um, in, in the town in Texas, and uh, is, you know... Um, uh, wooed by Bernie, played by Jack Black, uh, but uh, upon her demise, um, the the town feels as though as though Bernie's murder is too much of an act of vengeance rather than an act of grace. I mean, her death is celebrated and lauded. I can't think of many other douches in movies this decade who you can say that about. I don't know. Does Olaf die? Or I'm um, sorry, uh, Hans dies. Does it get melted? Uh, like the no, yeah. no, no. He doesn't die. Just, just arrested, basically. Anyway, uh, I think the, the female douchebag is underrepresented, and she's she's a pioneer and in in a trailblazer in that category. So I'll, I'll go with Shirley MacLaine. Well played, well played. We're gonna come back through Our, these categories for honorable mentions, right? I was thinking we did just do a quick honorable mention before I move on. So okay. but, but I'm going to go through. There's a, two others I had written down that I want to mention. Um, I had Sarah Paulson from 12 Years a Slave or basically any of the slave owners in 12 Years a Slave except for like Benedict Cumberbatch. And then the other one that I liked even more that I almost went with was Jack Rayner from Midsommar who played the, uh, oh, the yeah. boyfriend. Yeah, that was. I thought that was a good one. All right, Todd, what do you got? Uh, 
I also my female version was uh, was Uma Thurman in the house that Jack built because she basically <laughs> is like the bitchiest, most horrible person, and she begs to get killed basically. Uh, and my Nicolas Cage one was his character in Dog Eat Dog because I mean it's a Paul Schrader character, and uh, I mean it, that's as unlikable as you get for a Cage role. All right, Zach, did you have any honorable mentions? Uma Thurman, that is an insane pick. Um, but okay. Um, I, I went with, um, I also had a, a, another one, uh, which was Leslie Manville in Phantom Thread, getting, calling out those, uh, uh, representing all female douchebags. Um, she's a, a strong contender as well. And then of course, how could anyone forget Tom Hardy in The Revenant? Already mentioned, but I, I didn't even think about him until Terry mentioned him earlier, but uh, man, some real strong douchebag qualities to that character as well. That, that's a good call. That's a good call. All right. We're moving on to biggest stick man. Uh, so, so my biggest stick man. I mean, I yeah. I, I went with. I, I may have gone with the safe choice, which may not necessarily even qualify, but I'm going with it. I went with Michael Fassbender's character in Shame. Um, oh. I mean, he's he's. Low hanging fruit. A, I know it I is. Like it. it is. I mean, it's. it's I forgot about movie that movie. Of, that's a yeah, good, it's an entire movie about sex addiction. So I mean, he's he's obviously a stick man if that's what if that's like the defining characteristic of his character. So I think it was pretty easy to go with that one. So that's my pick. <laughs> yeah, that was Bye. my pick as well. I I mean, it just seemed too easy. I mean, the whole movie is just him like having emotionless sex with countless women. I mean, if there's not something that makes you a stick man more than that. But what makes this character interesting is that it's, you actually feel like it's a real character. It's not like a comedic stick man, or it, they're not, it's not shallow. Like, you actually believe him, which makes him unlikable, and he's almost like low-key, like, one of the biggest douchebags as well. But, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I completely concur. That, that is the biggest stick man of the, of the decade. Zach? I went with Shia LaBeouf in American Honey because he pretty much bangs every single female in that movie, right? I mean, isn't that like, I mean, all those teenage girls that are in the van selling magazines, basically it's a rite of passage to have sex with him at some point. Am I right, Todd? Yeah, I suppose. But, I mean, I don't know if that's because he's he's just macking on them or if he just is like low-key their boss. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> um, let, let, all right. So I've got a couple others I wanted to mention here. Um, first, I have. Um, oh, let's see here. Oh, so uh, they're they're more like a little less obvious, but I'm gonna kind of go with it here. Um, Timothy Chalamet's character in Lady Bird. I feel like that that's like the high school stick man of that high school. Could also be a um, douchebag candidate as well. What one? Timothy Chalamet in Lady Bird. Could, oh. could, could be a douchebag. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so, and then I have, uh, th this one's kind of an interesting one. Ray Fiennes in the Grand Budapest Hotel. I mean, he's kind of, he's kind of hanging around all the old ladies and, you know, <laughs> providing for their needs as the, as the, uh, as the concierge. That's speculative, though. That is speculative. That is speculative. And the other one I have is, uh, and this one's also speculative, but you you know you know what he's really doing. Oscar Isaac and Ex Machina. I mean, why is he really creating all those female robots? I mean, let's let's be honest here. Um, 
but sure. but does it really count if you're creating if you're creating inanimate beings to act like to act like people so you can be a stick man i don't know if that necessarily counts but you know that was part of the design you know it was anyways that again speculative <laughs> all right my leading female candidate was blake lively in the town I mean, she even says that she's like, boys like me. And then John Hamm's like, yeah, I bet they do. Uh, uh, and then my the one that would be obvious, which would be the highest volume, like for sure. And I'm not saying Nymphomaniac. I'm saying Scarlett Johansson and her. Because clearly, like, I mean, the, the volume of hundreds of thousands. Uh, yeah. And But then my Nicolas Cage ones are Inconceivable, which is obvious for reasons I reviewed on the podcast. And Drive Angry as well. Uh which is a movie I have not thought about in about nine years, but uh, I had to mention it here. Total stickman. Zach, did you have any honorable mentions for this one? Wow, this is getting off the rails even sooner than I thought it was going to get. Um, I, uh, how come I, I did the most mainstream picks? This doesn't make sense. Uh, I, I went with Ryan Gosling and Crazy Stupid Love and John Hamm and Baby Driver. Like, come on, let's, you know... Yeah, the crazy something for convention. John Hamm and Baby Driver. That's a terrible pick. He's got a girlfriend. He's got the girl. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't necessarily like that. Maybe pick, I'm just thinking Gosling of Mad Men. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe Matt, John Hamm and John Bridesmaids. Hamm. John Hamm Bridesmaids. I changed my mind. There we go. That, yeah, that's better. <laughs> All right. Favorite minor character. What do we usually call this? The Amazing Larry, Big Tim, High Roller. Um. So the the funny thing is when we usually do this, it's not like someone who you would consider for like a supporting the supporting Oscar nomination or something like that, right? It, it, this is like small time character that just kind of pops up and you're like, I love that guy. So I don't know. You had I, uh, what is his name from It's a Wonderful Life? Who um, did I have Walter for? Mitchell, or is that his name? Uncle Billy. Oh, Thomas Mitchell. Uncle Thomas Billy. Mitchell. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean that was he's still fairly fairly minor. Anyways, he's not the main character. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but okay. It's so not my, about Uncle my favorite minor character. Life. I went with Adam Driver in Inside Lewin Davis. Oh, that's um, a good one. Yeah, I just love that guy, and I mean, it's I could listen to pick. to Dear Mr. Kennedy, uh oh, all day long, and he's the one that makes it so amazingly bizarre, and yeah, so. Adam Driver inside Lewin Davis. That's my pick. Todd, what do you got? Uh, so this is going to be a little bit more obscure, and I'm not sure if you guys even remember the character. It's Angelique Papulia and the Lobster. She plays Heartless Woman, uh, and it's a character that is what put the movie over the top for me because it's a snobby movie about like ideas and atmosphere and shock value, but her character is so nuts. From the moment you see her, when she like fakes choking... And, um, in, in order to, like, get David to, like, uh, come over to her so she can tranquilize him, and he, realizing that he has zero sympathy, too, and then they become a pair, and then she kills his brother-slash-dog in, in the hotel room after they're paired together. Like, that character is so... it got under my skin. And it's debatable whether she's minor, because she's in, like, three scenes, but it's a performance that I've always thought... I, I will always think of when I've seen that movie, and, uh... Yeah, I don't know another time I'll be able to bring her up, but, like, she's my supporting actress winner uh, for that year. She is, I, I, I think it. I think it's something truly special watching that character. Yeah, I don't remember that at all. 
but I don't remember much about the lobster. I only saw it the one time. All right, Todd, Zach. What about you, Zach? You yeah, remember, see, Todd, remember that Todd, character? No, not at all. But Todd, is, Todd gets some points for sticking to the true spirit of the category because you're right. I mean, unless if, we're, if we can't talk about uncut gems, it's going to be unlikely that any of us can remember actual minor characters in anything, right? True. So everybody um, remembers Adam Driver and Inside Llewyn Davis, though. That's true, and that's because it's a I'm song. Not gonna, I'm not going <laughs> to beat that, Terry. That's a great pick. That that uh, mine were not as good as that. So so you win. I defer. Um, the ones I had, well, I guess, uh, okay, I'll, I'll say, I, I really was thinking about, um, and I'll talk about this later, Keanu Reeves as the, uh, as the CD motel manager in The Neon Demon, which I, I won't say too much about, but he definitely wins the best minor character of that movie, and I, if the movie was more about him, maybe I would have liked it more. Uh, but I think my true answer goes to um, Alan Alda in Marriage Story, because he was married four times, oh. and... Adam Driver reminds him of his second marriage, which is an interesting detail. And he charges less than Ray Liotta, which is interesting. And then he gets fired because he's probably not that good of a lawyer. I love that pick. That's a great, that's a great pick. That's a great pick. All right. uh, Some that just missed the mark for me. I've got uh, Sam Rockwell and Jojo Rabbit. I thought that was a great character. Uh, And then the other one I want to mention is uh, Army Hammer and Sorry to Bother You. Yes, um, that's a great one, too. I, yeah, that, like, we, we, I, I kind of bash on Army Hammer and, like, what, what roles does he really fit in? I think that was just... It was so weird to see him in that role, and then he was just great in it. And for, like, six months after I saw that movie, like, every gif I would send people was a gif of Army Hammer from Sorry to Bother You. It was either him, like, pumping his fist to the music, or, You are awesome. So, uh... <laughs> so yeah i had to, i had to mention him too Tom. all right uh my male version i was gonna there was i was choosing between like three characters in piranha 3d i went with eli roth as a wet t-shirt contest host uh the one that would be obvious for me would be matthew mcconaughey and the wolf of wall street i mean that is on borderline everyone should have that pick and my nicholas cage pick would have been of course spider-man to the spider-verse as the noir spider-man Oh, good call. Good call. Okay, Zach, did you have any others? Yeah, I uh, Ben Mendelsohn plays Beyond the Pines, who I mention a lot. And uh, I also thought about Kevin Nash as Tarzan in the Magic Mike movies. I mean, you remember him, right? You, you probably don't remember a whole lot else of Magic Mike, but everyone remembers Tarzan. Yeah, yeah, good call. Good call there. Okay, worst performance... Um, the, this was, this was the, maybe the hardest one to come up with. Um, and once I got this one in my head, I couldn't really think of anything else. Uh, my worst performance comes from the de-aged Jeff Bridges and Tron Legacy. Um, <laughs> regular Jeff Bridges was fine, but de-aged Jeff Bridges was just, was just bad. It, it, it just didn't work. The, the CGI on the de-aging didn't work and it, it was just awkward, and yeah, so that that's my pick. I think that's a great Jeff Bridges role. I think only Jeff Bridges could play that role. <laughs> well, it's true. Only Jeff Bridges could play that role, <laughs> because it was played by him 20 years ago, or 20 years earlier. Anyways. <laughs> right. Todd? Uh, so I went with 
a performance, the lead performance in one of my five worst movies of the decade, and that is Ryan Reynolds in Green Lantern. Because it's this stupid movie, and this stupid performance is what made me hate Ryan Reynolds for, like, the, the better part of the last decade. He's, like, too goofy to take seriously. He's too much of an asshole to actually be funny. Uh, you can't make, like, Van Wilder a superhero. You won't care. And that is what we feel about this movie. We don't care, because it sucks, and he sucks. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds, worst performance, easily. I still haven't seen Green Lantern. I actually own it, but I haven't seen it. You're lucky. Not that you yeah. bought it. <laughs> you haven't seen it. <laughs> it was like a $3 bargain bid buy, so I was like, ah, why not? All right, Zach, worst performance of the decade. So originally, I thought about this worst performance for the Mount Rushmore because it was an Oscar-nominated performance. It's actually an Oscar-winning performance. And I just thought... I, I f*** it. This has to be the worst performance of the decade because it has ruined for me forever my appreciation of this once fine acting talent in every single thing he's in, including a movie we recently reviewed. And that is Gary Oldman in Darkest Hour. I mean, between the makeup, between the prosthetics, between the weight gain, between the unconvincing uh, imitation, uh, between the um, shameless Oscar baiting of a movie that is totally forgettable in every aspect. Um, it just, again, tarnishes his legacy as an actor. Uh, and it's a terrible performance in a terrible movie that is sh shows off the worst part of Oscar instincts, which is to reward mimicry for people who have been acting in movies for over 20 years and haven't won. So it's it's a shameful performance. You can say that I about disagree, a lot of Gary. movies. I disagree, Gary. I disagree. Yeah. I also, I mean, I'm not going to pick on someone for, I, I don't, I don't like shitting on actors, so I'm going to pick on someone who got a lot of recognition undeservedly and, you know, probably, you know, like, I, I don't know, like that, that was such an over, that, the, I mean, okay, was it the worst performance? I don't know, but like, it should not have gotten the recognition that it did and shame on the Oscars. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that's a terrible way to go, but I, I did like that performance, so. Okay. Uh, I've got a couple others I wanted to mention. Um, uh, one is, uh, Paul Giamatti in The Amazing Spider-Man 2 as the Rhino. Um, however, That's I kind of wanted to see more of that, uh, at the same time. And the other one is, uh, this one always kind of bothered me as much as I love the movie, but Samuel L. Jackson in The Kingsman was just distractingly weird, and, uh, I didn't really like his performance at all, so that was my other... Another honorable mention. Alright, my Nicolas Cage one was his performance in Grand Isle, which is just terrible. Uh, the ones that I probably should have had on there are Allison Janney and Margaret and Quentin Tarantino and Django, Un Django Unchained, because those are on my oh, worst yeah. performances in four-star movies list. And they're just terrible performances anyway. And my fe my female top contender was Kathleen Turner in Dumb and Dumber 2 as Freda of Felger. I mean... Like, I mean, you could get point out a lot of people in that movie, but, I mean, she... Like, why did they have to bring her into this? <laughs> like, I wanted to see that character, but never like that. <laughs> Zach, did you have any other thoughts? Uh, I went with Robin Williams and John Cusack in The Butler as Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon, <laughs> respectively. Yeah, that's, that, that's a good call, too. That's a good call, too. <clears throat> All right, now the last one, highest war performance of the decade. 
Uh, and uh, I, I think it's really funny that uh, Todd's last pick for worst performance because my highest war performance is Ryan Reynolds in Deadpool. Um, you can't make Vine Wilder a superhero. <laughs> but but if you're going to, I mean, he is he is Deadpool, right? He is Wade Wilson, and that's and that's what makes that so perfect. I mean, that is. I, there is nobody else that could possibly play that part, and that is, and he's the only reason Deadpool ever made it onto the screen is because he said, "This is me. I have to be. I have to make this movie," and and that's. And they're like, "Oh, you already had reason. a failed version of that in the Wolverine movie, so yeah, go well, for it." Well, that's because they screwed it up. They screwed it up. Like the Deadpool movie is actually fairly true to the comics of what that is actually supposed to be like. And uh, and yeah, they screwed it up in the X Men Origins Wolverine movie, and this one is it. It's just awesome. And like I said, it he's the reason the movie exists, and he he is Wade Wilson in so many ways. So you have to go. I had to go with Ryan Reynolds and Deadpool as my highest war of the of the decade. Not best performance, but highest war. It's not quite as bad as Green Lantern, but it's pretty bad. Ah, oh, you disappoint me. All My right. Highest War is a movie that Zach and I love, and we bring it up randomly just because we love the movie, and that is Kristen Wiig in Welcome to Me. Yes. Because I feel Great like call. no other actress in any era could have touched that role. She has a monopoly yeah. on these like awkward, deadpan, cringy, funny roles, and you just feel like uncomfortable watching her, and you also feel for her. Like, she's amazing. I think it, she gave the single best performance of 2015, and... I think it was easily the highest war for any actress of the decade, and I, I couldn't I, I, I couldn't put any actor above that. Like, I can't see anyone else trying to do it like that. Great, great choice. Thank you. I'm glad I pleased you one time. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, Zach, what do you got? Well, I went with someone who I we've also mentioned on the podcast more than once and someone who just needs needs some recognition because, listen, for all the shit they get, they still are one hell of a performer. And that man's name is Mr. Peter Simonashek in a movie called Tony Erdmann because I can't think of very many other 65-year-old, 6'2 Germans who can also put on a wig and have a buck tooth and pretend to be, uh, you know, this alter ego in order to cheer his daughter up. Um, I mean, who you got? You got, like, Christoph Waltz. Okay, that's not going to work. Werner Herzog? Now, I would actually watch that, but, um, you know, not going to happen. And Bruno Ganz is dead. So, who's left? No one. It had to be Peter Simonashek. Whatever happened to the, uh, to the potential American remake starring Jack Nicholson? Of Tony Erdman. And Kristen Wiig. And Kristen Wiig. Well, I think, <laughs> hopefully, this will revitalize conversations about it with the two top war performances of the decade. Two of the top three. And then Ryan Reynolds can be in there somewhere. Somewhere. Somewhere, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what happened okay. to that. Um, Todd, Todd Field should direct it. Oh, now we're talking. <laughs> Alright, I've got a few others uh, that I was considering... Um, uh, Brad Pitt in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I just felt like that role was so Brad Pitt. I couldn't really see anybody else doing it. Um, Jared Leto, but Dallas Buyers Club. I feel like that was a very, a very specific role just for him. Um, and then uh, Paul Walter Hauser in Richard Jewell. I mean, he was cast simply because of how much he looked like the guy. And there's nobody else in Hollywood that has that. Jonah Hill that was going to that. play that role. 
Yeah, but not as well as he ended up doing it. And then uh, the ultimate one that maybe should have been what I went with uh, was Danny Trejo and Machete. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. That's a great choice. <laughs> I mean, the, talk about highest war. I mean, no one else is Machete. Well, like, Danny Trejo like is times. Machete. I know, I know. Before the 2010s, but <laughs> I'm going with it anyways. That's that's why I didn't go with it as my main one, but uh, it deserves mentioning. The one I probably should have said was Jesse Eisenberg and the Social Network. I, I still can't picture anyone else doing that. My male mention would have been Joe Pesci and the Irishman, because uh, I I still think that that, is, that, that role is... Like, only Joe Pesci, and only the shock of seeing Joe Pesci do that is... Um, is uh, what makes that movie tick. And my Nicolas Cage one is Army of One, which he I think he should have gotten nominated for. He plays Gary Faulkner, the guy who is on a mission from God to kill Osama Bin Laden. And um, I, I can't see any other actor taking it that seriously. He is amazing. It's a Larry Charles movie, so you could see, uh, you could know that it's uh, very satirical as well. Army of One, it's not a bad movie. He's amazing. <laughs> All right. Wow. Take your word for it. Zach, did you have any others you wanted to mention? Yeah, a few others. Uh, Patrick Wang and In the Family, because I don't know very many other Asian gay men um, who could star in their own movie. I also thought about um, James Franco and The Disaster Artist. And obviously, mm-hmm. Jesse Plemons and The Master. I mean, come on, that's a rule <clears throat> born for Jesse Plemons. And then I had a special mention for Patrick Fugit and Gone Girl, because I feel like when we started talking about um, Gone Girl and that role, that's when we started talking about young William Miller. So I feel like he was the impetus for our conversations on that. I don't know if that makes it a high war performance, but I just thought about mentioning him. Yeah, I actually was considering another James Franco performance. I was thinking of him in 127 Hours. I thought that was a very James Franco performance, too. That almost made my made my short list. Okay. Well, hey, we already did our honorable mentions, so we're done with that part. This feels weird. Okay, so that means we're going to Adam's list. Um, so, yes, Adam Daly of uh, Almost Sideways, he does uh, the Daily Notes episodes. Uh, he's doing a, a a Christmas episode this week, uh, looking at It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, I know he he was on the deep dive last week, but he's doing his um, his first time watch, as as Todd has uh, has affectionately deemed them today. Uh, it's the Come to the Daily Notes um, watch of uh, of It's a Wonderful Life, <laughs> and uh, he's talking about that uh, this week. Anyways, he sent in his picks. Uh, this will be interesting to see what he came up with. I'll list mine first. So I'm going to say I'm predicting his biggest douchebag is going to be Chris Evans and Knives Out. Um, biggest stick man, Leonardo DiCaprio, Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, best minor character, Lil Rel Howery and Get Out. Worst oh, performance, worst performance, Jared Leto and Suicide Squad. And highest war, J.K. Simmons and Whiplash. <laughs> we have a really similar <laughs> prediction. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so for worst performance, I have Hugh Jackman in Movie 43. Uh, highest War, I have Miles Teller in Whiplash. The, for Big Tim, I have Lil Rel Howery in Get Out. <laughs> for Billy Bats, I have uh, Benjamin Bratt in Coco. And for Stickman, I have Ryan Gosling in Crazy Stupid Love. Okay, uh, okay. Uh, uh, so my minor character was Allison Janney in Margaret, already mentioned. Um... Biggest douchebag was Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler. 
Biggest stick man is Robert De Niro in Dirty Grandpa. Worst performance <laughs> is Meryl Streep in August Osage County. And highest score was Ryan Gosling in Blue Valentine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this is so. <laughs> oh, he gave he gave a all right. He gave a bunch of honorable mentions for each one too. Okay, so um, I'm sure he did. So many left off, but overall fun list. Okay, so should I start? What should I start with? Should I start with? Uh, I'll start with douchebag. No, I'll, yeah, is that what we started with? We start with douchebag. So we'll start with douchebag here. Um, biggest douchebag, the Winklevi from the Social Network. Well, if they would have invited invented fit no. Invited. If they would have invented Facebook, they would have invented Facebook. Uh, they also wrote Crew, so pretty douchebaggy there. Yeah. Plus, it's Army Hammer, and he might be the best actor to play a douchebag other than Timothy Oliphant. His, I, I uh, wouldn't argue with that. Yeah, his um his honorable mentions are uh, Chris Red from Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping, Adam Devine from Pitch Perfect, and John Bernthal in Fury. Playing, yeah. So yeah. Hunter from Popstar, Bumper from Pitch Perfect, and Grady Kunas Travis from uh, from Fury. Okay, I thought I had a pretty good one there. Chris Evans, Knives Out. I thought that deserved well, me on there. Well, the bad guy in Coco, <laughs> he loves that movie. Yeah. Okay. Ernesto de la Cruz or whatever his name is. Oh yeah, Ernesto de la Cruz. Yeah, that would have been a good one too. That's what I said. Biggest stick man. Yeah, yeah. That is what you said. I just said it again. Biggest stick man. All right, I hate this pick. Biggest stick man is Don John and Don John. That's not, yeah. Okay, He's not a okay. Stick man. More That's the like self abuse. Yeah, he says, okay, more like self abusing stick man. Mostly just wanted to mention this film for a best of list. That's a horrible pick. That's the worst pick you could have possibly made. Except his uh, though, Andy Circus pick. That's still worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. Honorable mention, he's got Jacob Palmer, played by Ryan Gosling in Crazy Stupid Love. Oh, I thought about my, this one. Julia mine. Harris. Okay. Yeah, Julia Harris, played by Jennifer Aniston in Horrible Bosses. I thought about that one. Oh, uh, oh and, yes. That's a good one. Uh, Amy Schumer, in any movie she stars in this decade, whether it be Snatched or Trainwreck, etc., and Christian Grey, played by Jamie Dornan in fifty in the Fifty Shades movies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Those are all better picks than Don John. That's horrible. Yeah. Okay. Favorite minor character. He went with Mbaku, played by Winston Duke in the Black Panther movies and Avengers Endgame. Winston Duke might be one of my favorite actors now. Mbaku oh, is my really? favorite I didn't MCU know that. character. <laughs> <laughs> and I just yeah, and I just want to see more of his character. When you see a normal man changing, charging into battle alongside Captain America, Thor, and the Hulk to take down Thanos, he cemented his place as my favorite character of the decade. Whatever. Okay, his um his runners up are Jared, played by Skylar Gisondo in Booksmart. Uh, in okay. uh, MF Jones, played by Jamie Fox in Horrible Bosses. That's a that's a good pick. Uh, I'm surprised this one hasn't been mentioned yet. Alien, played by James Franco in Spring Breakers. That's the third mention of James Franco in three <laughs> different performances. <laughs> I don't and, think he's really a douchebag. No, this is his favorite minor character. Oh, it's not a minor character either. Yeah, yeah well, that's a good like point too. Role. He's like the he's like the character. And John Cena in Trainwreck. 
<sighs> so am I ahead because I had one of his honorable mentions? I think so. I think so. That's the closest thing anybody's gotten. Uh, all right. Worst performance of the decade goes to Jai Courtney in A Good Day to Die Hard. They tried so hard to make this guy happen this decade. This is kind of my roles wrapped in one worst. However, he nailed it in Suicide Squad. But playing Bruce Willis, who is almost as worse as son in this film, is such bad casting, and he does nothing with this role. All right. Eh, yeah, I haven't true. seen it, but... Um, all right. Uh, then he's got... Uh, Die Antward as themselves in Chappie, as an honorable mention. Uh, Bruce Willis in Cop Out. Jaden Smith in After Earth. Johnny Depp in Mordecai. Reese Witherspoon in Hot Pursuit. And Henry Cavill's Upper Lip in Justice League. That's the best one on his list right there. <laughs> yeah. I thought he was going to uh, go for Hugh Jackman's lower chin in movie 43. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Highest war performance. Number one, Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler. Oh! I could, oh had in the wrong category, the though. wrong category. Oh, so close. I can only see one person in this role, and that's Gyllenhaal. When you consider, um, when you're considered to be one of the be biggest snubs of the decade, it's easy to see why he would have such a high war. Easy pick for me. All right, so his honorable mentions, he's got Brad Pitt in The Tree of Life, Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master, Mods Mikkelsen in The Hunt. Andre 3000 and Jimmy All is by my side, and Bria Vinate in The Florida Project. Okay. No Brooklyn Prince. And no mention of Whiplash. I mean, I think both of those <laughs> would have been good I forgot about picks. Whiplash. So do, do uh, Zach and I kind of have a tie? <laughs> I think <laughs> I so. I think, well, I think I, I would say Todd won because... He had the right category. Because <laughs> you category. had the you had it in the right category. But I had the a winner though. I feel like that trumps. The I know, category. That's why I was thinking like a tie, but I don't know mm. what we're gonna choose. I think we collaborate. Let's let's do that. We'll we'll collaborate. Okay. For our first, uh, so we our get first half, half points point for this shit. What? We're getting half points. Yeah. Yes. Half points. Fractional points. That gets me I mean, to twenty four and a half. That gets Zach to. 18, and Terry is sitting at 15. Do better, I mean, you Terry. You mentioned like 25 different people, and we mentioned 15 different people, and only two of them were even were even overlapped. I think it's that, impressive we had the same exact Big Tim role. <laughs> I know. I was like, this is totally what he's going to say. He's totally going to go with Lil Rel Howery. But no. Winston Duke. Winston Duke. We should have known. We should have known he was going to say Winston Duke. He's a bigger fan of Winston Duke than I am of Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I think he's a bigger fan of Winston Duke than Winston Duke is a fan of Winston Duke. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, there's that. Winklevi is a big douchebag. That was a good call, too. That was a good call. However, Don John... For the stick man was well you had horrible. another army hammer douchebag <laughs> no he was a favorite minor character but he was a douchebag too yeah yeah all right well there we go so you guys will figure it out for our first our first power ranking of 2021 in two weeks when we get back to this again let's move on into our trivia segment are you ready 
Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. We've got a couple trivia movies we need to talk about. And, I mean, Zach's already mentioned it a little bit. So, Zach, why don't you talk about The Neon Demon? So, so Todd assigned to me The Neon Demon, directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, who at one point in the 2000s was, like, considered a really exciting, new, trendy director. He directed Drive and Bronson and... I think those were sort of his establishing films, and then he really kind of sh- hit, shit hit the fan when he made that one Ryan Gosling movie in, in Thailand, and then he did uh, this, um, which got, I think, pretty bad reviews. Um, this And this is a movie that stars Elle Fanning as Jesse, who is a teenager from a small town America, and she is traveling to L.A. because she has big dreams of becoming a model. Um Boy, I haven't seen that premise before. She stays at a seedy hotel run by Keanu Reeves. And that's the best part of the movie, okay? The best scene in this movie comes when she goes back to her house and there is some f***ed up shit in her room. Like, something is going on. And she, like, runs downstairs and is like, help, help, there's something in my room. And who pops out but Keanu Reeves, okay? Great, great minor Keanu Reeves performance. Also, biggest douchebag of the movie because he eventually charges her money for damages to the room that are caused by the intruder because she left the door open. Now, I'm not going to say what the intruder was because it's a really good scene in the movie. In fact, it was my favorite scene of the movie. Um, but it also kind of reminded me of why I didn't like this movie that much, which is that it is an inferior version of Nocturnal Animals. I mean, it's like almost the exact same movie as Nocturnal Animals and Jenna Malone is in both movies. I'm curious to know how, I, what Todd thinks about that or if, or if I'm on, on a limb. So I'll, I'll let you respond to that in just a second, but I, cause I have a couple other things to say about it. Um, this movie was given zero stars by James Bardinelli, who's one of the three critics that I read at this point. I've never seen a movie that James Bardinelli has given zero stars to. Um, I think it's much better than the zero star rating he gives to it because it is, it is an interesting movie. I mean, I, I do have to say that, um, I think Elle Fanning is maybe an upgrade from Ryan Gosling in some respect because I think she actually gives a kind of interesting performance. And the movie touches on, I think, really interesting issues in the world of uh, beauty because the idea is that, like, um, you know, all these women come to Hollywood and then they do all this manipulation, their faces and stuff, and that ruins... Um, what I think, you know, uh, male chauvinist directors like Nicholas Winding Refn consider pure beauty. Um, this is also a highly misogynistic film and very much in the tradition of the male gaze, like unironically. Um, it does have some good performances, good moments also by Christina Hendricks, who's in one scene in the movie. The first hour and a half of this movie is, um, really slow. There's not a lot of dialogue. And I think if you're looking for that sort of spectacular, uh, violence, um, that you'd expect, you have to wait a long time for it it comes in the last 30 minutes of the movie and it's pretty it's just you know kind of just shock value just, you know, t- sort of token stuff nothing nothing too spectacular um it's really kind of a letdown and i don't think the movie really i think the movie kind of accidentally stumbles onto these kind of interesting points because i don't actually think it's that intelligent of a movie it's really well shot and i like al fanning and certainly not a zero star movie it it it, it I had me interested for just under two hours, which is pretty impressive these days, but I have to give it uh, two stars because um, why not just see Nocturnal Animals instead? Nocturnal Animals does not 
I mean, th- that has a whole other thing with Aaron Taylor Johnson going on. Like, I could see some similarities with the other parts, but I don't know. I don't... I <laughs> The Neon Demon's a complicated movie for me because I watched it in the theater, and I loved it. It was in my top ten of 2016. Watching it not in a theater setting does not is not quite that good, but I still think it's pretty awesome. And there are images that are forever ingrained in my head. I mean, n- n- I don't even need to say, you know, le- lesbian necrophilia. Because, you know, we don't say that enough. But, uh... <laughs> Come on, would you... Also... Sorry, go ahead. Go for it. Oh, well, I mean, the movie also has Desmond Harrington, who is Quinn and Dexter, and he is awesome, and another yeah, big douchebag near the end of the, <laughs> end of the movie. I was gonna say, because the actor from Dexter's in it. That's also... That was my conspiracy theory about why you really liked this movie, because it had a Dexter cast member in it. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, it wouldn't only be that. <laughs> I, I honestly do still love the movie. I think it's a three-and-a-half-star movie. It could, uh, the Keanu it. Reeves scene, will you agree with me that's the best scene in the movie? And the best character in the movie? Like, I want to spin off with that character. Where I, he runs the CD Motel. Maybe he's, like, friends with Willem Dafoe and the Florida Project. Maybe they hang out together at CD <laughs> Motel uh, owners' conventions or something like that. But, I can see um, it. He's, he's awesome. I, I think but Keanu this Reeves movie did not get a... that shitty reviews. I don't know what, what... I mean, it's got, like, 60% or so. It was nominated for a bunch of critic awards. I, I don't... I mean, it never was, like... Well, James Bernelli hated it, so so maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Because <laughs> he's on one of the he, only three critics. He, like, made, hated right? it. He doesn't... I, I've only seen him give, like, zero stars to maybe, like, five movies of all time. And, I mean, that's impressive that he hated it that much. So I guess that's something, right? That's true. I, I can respect that. I didn't assign this to Terry because it would be a very uninteresting conversation because I know what he would say already. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what my review of it would already be? Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, I may need to watch it at some point just to break the break the deadlock here. Just like uh, The House of Jack Built. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, this eventually. was much better than The House of Jack Built. Much more of a compelling movie. The House Didn't of Jack Built was terrible. Didn't you give that two stars as well? Did I? Okay, well then maybe I need to reevaluate. <laughs> this was a more enjoyable experience. Well, that's true. Although equally misogynistic director. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to the one that I had to watch, and uh, I'm I'm glad Todd assigned me this movie. I've been looking for an excuse to watch this movie for a while now, and I finally got around to it. Um, I watched quite a few movies this week. I watched the ones we've already talked about. I caught some TCM flicks too. This was, but this was the best one I saw this week. And that's Thunder Road, uh, written and directed by Jim Cummings, starring Jim Cummings. Um, this was born out of a out of a short that he did with, and that short turns into the first like ten minutes of the movie, of him uh, breaking down and really like having a full on nervous breakdown in front of an entire crowd of people at his mother's uh, funeral, uh, and from there, and that is like it, it's worth watching the movie just to watch that opening scene, that uncut ten minute, complete like mental break of a police officer and, and, and it's establishes everything you need to know about this character too. Um, and, and just the, all of his ticks and the way he talks and the way he breaks his stream of conscious to reference other things and other people in the room. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. Like that, that first 10 minutes is just brilliant, but then they turned it into a full length movie and it keeps going. And I'm like, how could the rest live up to it? And, I mean, nothing's going to li- live up to it, but it does a pretty decent job of finding a way to live up to it. 
Um, and um, as, as it continues on and you see just kind of the turmoil going on in his life and how he's got, he's fighting for custody of his kid and it's, and everything's kind of all going wrong at once, which is throwing off everything else in his life. I mean, it feels like one of these movies where it's just, you know, it's just a comedy of errors, but at the same time, um, it, it's like every scene, you don't know if you want to be laughing at him or crying for him. And, and it rides that balance the entire movie in such a brilliant way um, that, uh, I mean, you, you're, you're feeling for him in moments like the courtroom scene or, or at the end of the movie or when him and his buddy get drunk. Um, but then you kind of want to laugh at him when he decides to strip down naked in the middle of the parking lot of the, of the police department. Um, he, it's, it rides that fine line of sympathetic and comedy the whole way. Um, and, and part of that is, I feel like if, if it wasn't played by Jim Cummings, I feel like this was like someone that would be played by a character Will Forte created on SNL at one point. Like, it feels like Will Forte should be in this role if it wasn't Jim Cummings, but Jim Cummings just nails this, and it's his movie, it's his story, and he he needs to be making more stuff. He did just come out with a movie. The Wolf which, of Snow which, Hollow, yeah, which yeah, is yeah, a yeah. great movie as well. Yeah, so I, I need to see that one now. But yeah, three and a half stars for, for Thunder Road. Just a great movie and a real small time movie, but uh, great performances. And he, he it's like I said, it's his movie and he owns it and it's awesome. And he needs to be making more stuff. Yeah, I, I he is uh, he's a really good director, but he is a great actor. And I think I mean he it's almost he's got some like Mark Duplass kind of like early work kind of vibes to him. Like I could see him being like that level of a, a of an indie filmmaker and actor. He's I I, I, I mean I, I love Thunder Road and his and his new movie as well. Yeah, I, I love Thunder Road too. I love movies where a character is just self destructing in front of your eyes and like the anguish that this guy goes through, it, it is tragic, but there is also a very kind of funny undercurrent to the movie. Um, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, Terry, that he is almost like an SNL character in a way. I also feel like this movie has some DNA of uncut gems in it a little bit. Like, there's a little bit of Safdie Brothers in this movie, maybe not so much aesthetically, but again, in the, in the, in the anxiety-inducing in scenes that you see that are just really uncomfortable to watch this character in social situations. So the one I kept thinking about, did you ever see the SNL sketches with Will Forte playing the coach that was that would do like a motivational interpretive dance during halftime? No. I could see it happening. Sounds hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 need to, you need to watch it. And, and the, the faces of ev like you, you'd have like Bill Hader and Andy Samberg and Keenan Thompson in the background. Peyton Manning was in one of them. And they're all standing in the back trying not to laugh or trying to hide the fact that they can't stop laughing while Will Forte is dancing. Like, that character, that character would be a perfect uh, replacement for Jim Cummings in this movie. <laughs> All right. So, those are what we had to report on. Todd, you are leading trivia today. Tell us what we're doing. Uh, so, we are doing some more filmography trivia. And, uh, 
So, uh, once again, two pretty major birthdays happened today, and we are going to go through their filmography. The first one we are talking about is the 50th birthday of one Todd Phillips. So, we he has 13 movies that he has written, directed, or produced. And, uh... We're going to see how many you could get out of this. You should probably be able to almost run this if you know Todd Phillips at all. I mean, he he's had an up-and-down career. He started out, you know, in some pretty trashy comedies, and now he's making, you know, the leading uh, nomination getter on Oscar morning. Uh, we will start with uh, Zach. Thank you. So we can go Hangover 1. Hangover is correct. How about The Hangover Part 2? Hangover 2 is correct. And The Hangover 3! Hey, those are all out of Thrice the way! Thrice approved. That, yeah, so that is uh, almost a fourth of the movies on the list, yes. Well, then I'm going to go Joker. Joker is correct. Old School. Old School is correct. Okay, now I've got to think. Um, Wedding Crashers? That is not correct. Mmm. Zach, can you keep going? Uh, 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 no, I give up. Alright. Starsky and Hutch. There's one... Well, I mean, you already said you gave up. Oh, come on. I, I... <laughs> Give it to him. Give okay, it to I'll him. give it to him. That's all, though. That's all I got. Uh, I, I don't know anything else. Well, okay, so I'll say uh, th he had another Oscar nomination before Joker. It was for producing something, wasn't it? It was not. Okay, so that didn't work either. It was for Borat. <laughs> he was one of the writers oh, nice. on Borat. Oh, wow. His first uh, directed movie was Road Trip. He made School uh, for Scoundrels. His big budget flop follow-up to The Hangover was Due Date. Uh, oh, gosh. He was also a producer on Project X and A Star is Born, and he uh, also made War Dogs. Star is Born, yeah, I, I should have said The Star is Born. I was thinking about that one. I, I, I was like, there's a, there's a big... I, I was like, there's a big Bradley Cooper movie. written, or produced. Okay. I knew there was a big Bradley Cooper movie that he was a part of. That, but didn't he get? Wouldn't he have gotten an Oscar nomination for producing *A Star Is Born*? Then, well, it was nominated for Best Picture, but apparently, I don't know, he wasn't one of the producers they mentioned. I guess. Okay. Like Brad Pitt in *The Departed*. Yeah. Exactly. Because it was Graham King that made that movie, right? Right. Okay. Uh, three to two, Zach, and for the other Four filmography, to two. I got *Starsky and Hutch*. Yeah, I gave you what? Didn't I give you that? No. No, I said Hangover 1 and 3, Old School, and Starsky and Hutch. Oh, so 4 to, four to 2. We are going uh, to Jonah Hill, who is turning 37 today. Uh, and he has a whole lot of movies. I'm going with 32. I'm, I'm excluding all animated movies, so that's taking out like 5 Lego movies, uh, 3 How to Train Your Dragon movies, uh... Sausage Party, and, uh, I think it was, uh, oh, what was the other one? The one with Brad Pitt, Megamind. 
Those are the ones that do not count. So we have 32 movies that we can choose from for Jonah Hill. So we are starting this with Terry. Uh, let's start with The Wolf of Wall Street. That is, of course, correct. 21 Jump Street. 21 Jump Street is correct. How about 22 Jump Street? Also right. Super bad. Super bad is a great choice. I, I think he was in that, right? <laughs> Pretty sure. Uh, Moneyball. Moneyball. Correct. Two-time Oscar nominee, Jonah Hill. The 40-year-old virgin. That is also correct. Knocked up. Yes, sir. Funny people. Which I believe is Todd's favorite Jonah Hill performance, right? Joe, what? No. He's no? hardly in okay, Knocked never up. mind. No, I, funny people. Oh, funny people, that's correct. Um, accepted. There we go. Ask me about my wiener. Ask wieners. me about my wiener! <laughs> is now 8 to 7, Zach, and his sister. Uh, oh boy, this is where it gets tough. Um. It does not have to be a principal role. It could be a very, very minor role, which he has done a few times. I'm out. I got nothing. <clears throat> Can Terry tie it up? The sitter? Oh, the, yes. the sitter good, is good a call. great choice. David Gordon Green. <laughs> and I want to say he was in This Is The End. He was playing himself in This Is The End. Terry wins trivia. You have any more? No, that's it. <laughs> Alright. His most recent role was in The Beach Bum. He also had Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot. He was in War Dogs. Uh, Terry's favorite movie of all time, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and its follow-up, oh. Get Him to the Greek. My favorite Jonah Hill performance, Cyrus. Uh, oh, gosh. He also had tiny role in uh, Django Unchained and Hail Caesar. Uh, he had a lot of other stuff, but uh, you guys, you guys got the main ones. So, but Terry wins I, I, trivia. That does not happen very often anymore. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I actually was surprised that we didn't hear Cyrus mentioned by you as like highest war performance for Jonah Hill. Yeah, I, I guess I could have. I don't know. I, I guess I didn't uh, really consider that for any of those. But, I mean, I, I mentioned Wolf of Wall Street, at least. Yeah. Alright. Well, it is time for us to wrap this up with our quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. And uh, I'm going to go first because I won trivia, which does not happen very often. I've got two quotes. Uh, this is our last episode before Christmas. So I've got a couple Christmas quotes here that I feel like um, really, you know, encapsulate Christmas and everything it's about. They're both from Elf. 
Uh, so we've got, one of them is, uh, we elves tried to stick to the four main food groups, candy, candy canes, candy corn, and syrup. And I feel like that is really a lot of what the next couple weeks are going to be, especially being on Christmas break. And I don't know about Zach, but I get a lot of chocolate usually Minus the leading syrup. into Christmas break. Yeah. And then uh, the last one uh, that I'm going to give is uh, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. I just feel like that that's just a great... A great little Christmas sentiment there, so so there's that. All right, Todd, you're next. Okay, so uh, the MLS Cup was like last week or something, and Seattle was in it, and they lost. And that reminded me of one of my favorite shows, Eastbound and Down, one of the five funniest shows of the last decade, which should probably be a power rank at some point, which we can't do anymore. It's from Kenny Powers. He's in Mexico. And these kids are making a ruckus outside. And he says, let me make this real clear, Katui. If there is one thing I cannot stand in this world, it's f***ing soccer. And I hate when people do it around me. And that it describes me as a person as well. And Kenny Powers is <laughs> one of the great characters of all time. <laughs> uh, well done. Great job. All right, Zach, what do you got? All right, so I did an internet deep dive of Nicholas Winding Refn quotes. That's a fun internet deep dive. I suggest everyone take someday. But um, I, so I had a feed that I really liked. Uh, uh, he said, I think the internet is the greatest invention since women. Um, he also said, to me, the darkest film ever made and the, the film to me that's the darkest picture of the human humanity's soul is Pretty Woman. But my favorite quote of his is, I'm a huge fan of Keanu. I think he's absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> Aren't we all? I definitely am. He's the best part of that stupid movie. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> well, with that, we're going to draw this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, like I said, this is the last time we'll come at you before Christmas, so have a, have a wonderful holiday. Merry Christmas to all of you. We'll be back at you next week with our last deep dive of 2020, our last look at uh, some of the anniversaries that are being celebrated and some of the bit, some of the busy movies that are being released around Christmas Day. There's a ton of them, so we'll be uh, talking about those, I'm sure, as well. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.